like to wish a happy Mother's Day to everyone here who is a mother. As Jerry said so eloquently a moment ago in his prayer, we, we, we love you all so much. Amen. And to my mom who will be watching this clip, happy Mother's Day to you too. I love you very much. We're glad you brought me into this world. I know you can also remove me out of this world too. Um, I'd like to begin this morning in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 22. As you're turning there, Luke chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 21. And yet what's going on, though, in this chapter, though, is we find Jesus there in the upper room with the apostles. He takes the cup, as we just have celebrated a moment ago, and he says, this is my blood, drink, and do so in remembrance of me. He takes the bread and says, take this bread, break it, eat it, because it is memorializing my body, which is about to go to the cross. And yet then, though, what Jesus does is he drops a bombshell. Luke 22, beginning in verse 21. After starting the Lord's Supper, then it says, he says, but behold... The hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has already been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then it says in verse 23 that they began discussing among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. In other words, they are ascertaining which one of us in this room is the absolute worst. Well, eventually that leads to what so often happens when you get a bunch of ministers all together in the same room. Once it has been discussed who the worst of them is, they now begin speculating which one of them is the best. Look at verse 24. And there also arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as being the greatest. We hear that word greatest and our minds, as, as 21st century Americans, our minds go to very grandiose places. Because we tend to measure greatness many times about the things that impress us the most. In professional sports, greatness is determined by home runs, by TKOs, by MVPs, and by championship rings. But imagine, really, in order for us to, to fully understand just how ridiculous this sounded to Jesus, what he says after this. As he speaks about, if you want to know who the greatest among you is, it is not the one who you think is the greatest, but actually it is the one who is a servant. Now in this culture, it was all about hierarchy. If you were a servant, you were on the very lowest part of the low. But Jesus says, actually the one who is greatest in this kingdom of mine, it is the one who you think is the very lowest. And really for us to really understand how ridiculous and how foreign this was to the ears of the apostles. Imagine if the commissioner of Major League um, in Baseball were to call a press conference and say this. 
That, he, that if he said that the greatest ones in this sport are not those who hit the most home runs, it's not those who go to the most all-star games, but the greatest in this game are those men and women who clean up garbage late into the night after the game. That the greatest ones who have ever existed in this league are not Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio and Roger Maris. But the greatest ones in this league are the janitors who are scrubbing the commodes in the empty stadium after the ball game. I mean, it had to have sounded that ridiculous to their ears as Jesus answers their question. And so the apostles are having a debate about this. Which one of us is the absolute greatest among us in this group? And what's remarkable about this is just how late this is in the Gospel of Luke. Here are men who have spent three straight consecutive years with Jesus. Jesus has been showing them what his kingdom looks like, but still, at the very end, right before Jesus goes to the cross and arises from the grave, Jesus has his, his eyes resolutely set on Jerusalem, but... But before he gets to Gethsemane, before he can go to the cross, he, he almost has to just pause and put that on hold. Because now I, I have to teach these guys what my kingdom is all about. My kingdom is not just like any other kingdom. The things that impress you guys, the things that impress you and I, he's saying that they are not the things that impress my father and that no one in this kingdom is to expect any kind of lofty title, any kind of lofty pomp, as if they are the ones to be served and venerated by those who are far below them. When these men ask Jesus who is the greatest, that word great in the Greek, it is the word megas, which in that word we can all hear the word what? Mega. It's a word that means great in the largest loudest and wildest sense. In our modern day language, what they're asking Jesus is, which one of us is the Mac Daddy apostle of them all, right? Which one of us is the alpha dog in this group of apostles? And it's then that Jesus says that if you want to be great in this kingdom, you're going about it the completely wrong way. <clears throat> He says, look not to the prince or to the aristocrat, but look rather to that lowly servant who is on his hands and knees washing feet before people eat their meal, which happened every day in that culture. Mm -hmm. He's saying, look not to Lou Gehrig, look not to, to Ty Cobb or to Hank Aaron, but look to Joe the janitor. Mm -hmm. Look not to the monarch, but look to the servants. And as Jesus so often did when he taught, he gives them an object lesson. And it's then when Jesus Christ of all people, I mean, we're talking about the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he of all people, who is worthy of worship, he is the one who then shows them how to do this. As those knees bent down on the ground, and wash the blackened feet of his apostles. 
And let me remind us that this is a room full of alleged friends of his who are just about to go and betray him and sell him out. This is a room full of men who one of them is just about to go and say, I have never heard of this guy in my whole life. It's a room full of men who are just about an hour and a half away from abandoning him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says that if I have washed your feet, after I have gone, I want you to continue washing each other's feet. And so this debate has been settled, we will think. If you want to be great, follow my lead and do this. Amen. Serve each other. Amen. Elevate the other above your own self. And yet amazingly, this is not the first time that they have had this argument as to which one of us is the best. If we go back to chapter 9 of Luke, we see this, this debate springing up again. I mean, this really seems to be something that's on the forefront of their mind these three years. Luke chapter 9 and in verse 46, it says that an argument started among them as to which one of them might be the one that was the greatest. I mean, does this sound familiar to us? And I got a chuckle out of Mark's account, where in Mark's account, Jesus, it just looks like he's, he's walking on the road with the apostles as they're doing this. And then he turns around and he says, what are you guys discussing? And it says that they would not answer him. Now, because of, of how really silly all of this is. Well, on this occasion of Luke 9, though, this is where I really want to be this morning. Because once again, we find Jesus settling this debate. Once again, it is an object lesson that he uses, along with his own example. And yet, before we get there, just imagine, if you were to arrive this morning, if you were a visitor, perhaps, and you walked in here, and you saw me and Jerry and Lori all arguing among ourselves. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the best. No, I'm the best Christian here. No, no, I'm the best Christian here. And then Jim says, you, you know, you guys are bozos. I am the greatest in this church. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Lori speaks up and says, but I'm the one who does the bulletin. And actually, she would make a compelling point with that. Because <laughs> that's hard work. I mean, I know that's hard work. <laughs> And you just imagine how stupid it would be if we were arguing like this. Amen. I'm the best. No, no, I'm the best. This is what's going on here. And again, Jesus says, you guys want to be great? Do you want to know what greatness in my kingdom is all about? You see, if we want to be great in this church, do not look at this pulpit. Do not look at the man who is teaching a Sunday morning Bible class. But what Jesus says here is if you want to know what you need to be like, look to the nursery. Mm -hmm. Look to that child who does not yet have all of this knowledge that we have, but who has the heart, mm -hmm. who's got the very spirit that exemplifies and that exudes what my kingdom is all about. Because yeah. look at verse 47. It says, But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, 
took a child. Here's his object lesson. Jesus takes a child and he, he stands him by his side. And he asks his apostles, you see this kid right here? Oh, yeah. He says, whoever receives this child in my name also receives him who sent me. And then he says, for the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is the greatest. Mm -hmm. This is the one who is the greatest. I would also like to read Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 18, because this is where we find the words that we are most familiar with. And yet, strangely, this is also where we struggle with, perhaps the most, in our relationship with Christ. Because there in Matthew chapter 18, and in the first verse, it says this. On this occasion, perhaps, maybe a third time they have had this debate. This time they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want you to settle this debate once and for all. Which one of us is going to be the best? It's me, right, Jesus? No, it's me, right? No, no. And here's how he answers. It says in verse 2 that he called the child to himself and set him before them. And he said that truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, when they say who is the greatest in this kingdom, it is the kingdom that they are supposing that Jesus is coming to set up. Because in this world, again, we gravitate towards where we rank on the pecking order of the hierarchy. It's almost human nature to think, well, well, how do I measure up to um, her or to him? You see, the apostles are really only interested in, in some earthly kingdom. And if it's going to be an earthly kingdom, this means that, that I've got some earthly splendor and significance coming my way. You see, these three years, these, these 12 men are jockeying for position in this kingdom. And it just seems like it's human nature because in any group of people, if you are known for, for one specific specialty, if you are the, the one who is the very funniest in the group, if you're the one who is known as being great at arts and crafts, but another one comes along who's also great at being funny or being great at arts and crafts, it's almost like it's just this jockeying for, for who is you know, the tops. And I've experienced this as, you know, as a minister so often. When I was in seminary, it was at a school where at the very end, just at graduation, at the very end of it all, our entire class would, would only choose one person in our class as, as quote unquote the best one among us. They would get to speak at the congregation, 1,200 people on Sunday morning. And there were at least half a dozen guys in my class who, I mean, those two years, they were jockeying for that number one spot. And, and yet, that's not what it's about. I can tell you guys that I have never been to, to, to a preacher's meeting, all ministers, where there was not at least one guy who elevated and who anointed himself as the, pre or, or as the prince of all of those other preachers. 
who conducted himself as if, well, I am a preacher of preachers, and so they are here to, to bask in my you know, glory. And yet I'm grateful, though, for, for all those other men in the church who taught me at a very young age that it's not those who think that they are the prince of preachers that matters, but what matters is who is preaching the prince of peace. That's what matters. But it seems like just no matter what we do, though, there is just this unspoken ranking about where we stand. And so they are asking Jesus that, that in your kingdom to come, when you get this thing running, who's going to be the colonel? Who's going to be a sergeant? Who's going to be the lieutenants? And I mean, it's just driving them so nuts that, that they finally go to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to tell us which one of us is the, really, is, really is the fairest of them all. That's really what they care about. And I think that's a great question. Who is the greatest in the church? Is it the one who can quote the most verses? Is it the one who can, can you know, preach the most eloquent sermons? Is it the woman who can bake the best apple pie at the potluck? Is it the one who will drop the fattest checks in the collection plates? I mean, those are wonderful things. But if we want to know what truly God measures greatness by in his kingdom. He doesn't go to any of those places, notice. He goes to none of those places. That's because Jesus has a definition so far greater than what ours is. As again, in verse 2, it says that he calls a child. He says that unless you're converted and you become just like this child, I mean, this is just so foreign to their minds. But more than 2,000 years later, this is also what I would like to refer to as the conversion that we never talk about. It's the conversion that we never speak about. Because I don't know about you, but, but so often I have viewed that word conversion as something that, that we do once, one time and for all. We spend our lives praying, hoping others might be converted to Christ. But I believe what Jesus is speaking about here is a conversion that you and I must continuously undergo. I mean, over and over and over again. Amen. That word conversion is, is much like the word repent. And we know that that word means either that we turn or that we change, but... Really, the greatest understanding of that word repent or convert is to have this old head that's always operated in the same old way. You remove that head and you receive a brand new one from God. You put that brand new head on. And now you are thinking in ways that you have never thought before. Truly, I say to you that if you do not change, if you do not become converted, and become like little children. You are never entering into my Father's kingdom. You will not go to heaven. I mean, just think about how funny this concept is. He's talking about growing up by becoming younger. And we spend a lot of time hearing 
and also instructing others about having faith, about having repentance and baptism, all wonderful and essential things. But how often do we also think about being converted and becoming like children as an equally essential component of the salvation equation? Because after all, we would you know, retort. Children really aren't that, you know, all that important, right? When it comes to spiritual food, we, the adults, always are the ones who eat first. All children do in our assemblies just cause distractions. You know, as, you know, as a minister, I have you know, preached in many places, and you know, there are babies crying at the top of their lungs. It's nothing but a distraction. All they do is just annoy everybody and get in our way. And that's not how Jesus felt. Jesus does not see children as an annoyance. In fact, in the Gospels, we never find Jesus annoyed at children. The ones who he is getting annoyed by, though, we the adults. When we reach a certain age, we all of a sudden operate as if, well, I can rely on myself now. He gets so agitated at the scribes and Pharisees. He gets so agitated at his own apostles, but we never find him rebuking children, though. You know, we remember on that occasion as the children are being brought to Jesus, and the apostles are very indignant, and they start rebuking them. Get these kids away from Jesus. He's got much better things to do than that. We read that Jesus was indignant, not at the parents, but he's indignant looking at his own followers. And he's just shaking his head at them saying, let these children come to me. Because this kingdom that is coming, this kingdom belongs to those who have hearts and spirits and souls just like theirs. And then these words of tremendous magnitude. How he says on that other occasion that, that truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of heaven like a child, then neither will they enter that kingdom. No, children are not an annoyance. And I mean, I can see where the apostles are coming from. They, I mean, Jesus is a very busy man. He's got a cross to go to, an example to leave. And yet, notice how Jesus just stops everything that he's doing. And says, I want to, to hug these children and to bless them. Because as you look at these children, you're looking at my kingdom. You see, they are not, it's not that they are below us. But rather it is, yes, they are actually above us. And yet sometimes we forget that, that you and I are, are his sons and daughters too, don't we? When we pray... It's not that he sees us as we appear in the mirror. But when we call on his name, what he sees is an infant who is crying its eyes out, reaching up to its father and mother out of its crib. When we open up his word, in his eyes he sees that infant crying, longing to be fed. When we have sinned and confessed our faults to him, he sees a crying infant in a dirty diaper that needs to be changed. 
You know, there are a lot of people in this world who, on a day like this, it's a very sad day for them. Because they were not loved by their mothers or fathers. But when we cry out to Him day and night for food, when we cry out to Him that we need to be changed, that we need our tears to be wiped, He is never bothered by us. He never thinks, oh great, you know, what do they want now? I mean, it's not like I've got a universe to run or anything like that. What, what, what do you want? Jesus is, Jesus is not that kind of Lord. But regardless of, of how old we live to be, and no matter how wise we become in the scriptures, when he looks at us, he's always going to see that small, innocent child sitting on his lap. He's going to see that small and vulnerable sheep that has wandered away and that he has to pick up and, and bring back to safety. Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter into this kingdom. What Jesus is speaking about here is a salvation issue. Yes, this is a salvation issue. Becoming childlike is as much a salvation issue as repenting of our sins, as having faith in Him, and as being baptized. He's saying that if you want to go to heaven, you need to have the spirit of a preschooler. In our own modern day language, we can read this and say that if you want to spend eternity in heaven, you've got to go kindergarten. You've got to go kindergarten. But what does that mean? Because isn't it true that there are characteristics and attitudes of children that we should not imitate, that are not so heavenly? Because we could very easily misunderstand this. And so what Jesus is not inviting us to is he is not saying that we need to be immature people. I think about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. He says that when I was a child, I would speak as a child, think like a child, reason as a child. But when I became a man, an adult, I put away those childish ways and things. Now the context of that chapter seems to pertain more so to, to spiritual gifts. But nevertheless, as we grow up as followers of Jesus Christ, it's necessary for us to be mature and to be men and women rather than boys and girls. Also, he writes in that book, in the Corinthian letter, he says, be on the alert. Men, I need you to be men. I need you to be strong and to be bold. And so clearly there comes a time when, when we all need to grow up as people. Jesus is also not inviting us also that we should be spiritually immature. And I think about the writer of Hebrews. As he says that, you know, he laments. And he says that by this time, you should have been instructing other people. But now I've got to go back and, and start all over again with you. He says, but you need someone to teach you all over again the elementary principles of God. 
In other words, I want to give you guys steak and potatoes, but I can't give you steak and potatoes. I've got to give you Gerber and Infamil. He says that solid food is only for those who are dematured. I mean, those in Corinth were, were spiritual kindergartners as well. As Paul says, that I could not speak to you as spiritual men and spiritual women, but I had to, to speak to you as infants in Christ. I could not speak to you as I would in the book of Romans. I have to speak to you in goo-goo-ga-ga, goo-goo-goo-goo-ga-ga, goo-goo language. Because I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you're not ready for that stuff yet. Because in this church, there is childish jealousy and strife among you, where there should be love. He's also not suggesting that, that we should be a center of attention. And, and yes, kids do this all the time, don't they? You know, elsewhere, I think about James and John and their mother approaches Jesus on a not-so-happy Mother's Day moment. They're their mom walks up to Jesus and tries to coerce him into giving her sons a seat on his left and on his right in his kingdom. He said, woman, you have no idea what you're asking me to do. On this occasion, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. They may as well have been saying, you're a pee-pee head. No, you're a pee-pee head. No, you're a poo-poo head. I mean, just so immature. And you know, most children say or do anything that they might have attention. And there is an innocence to that. But when it's grown men and grown women acting that exact same way, well, that's not quite as cute, is it? You know, I think about the Pharisees, how Jesus says, do not be like the Pharisees, because they love to stand and command attention to themselves. Everybody, look how righteous I am. I am fasting three weeks now. I am praying to God. Everybody, look at how eloquent of a prayer that I lead to God. That is not what Jesus is inviting us to. You see, there is a difference between being childlike and childish. Jesus wants us to be childlike. And so what Jesus is inviting us to this morning is to a child's innocence. I'll never forget how when, at my hometown church many years ago, we had a very small girl in that church, maybe two or three years old. And we were singing a song called, I Exalt Thee, I Exalt Thee, O Lord. And I looked and her eyes were, were sealed shut. And she was so happy that, that, you know, she was smiling. But she was singing completely different words than, I Exalt Thee. She was singing, I am salty, I am salty. You know, apparently it may have been a hymn about Lot's wife, and I, I have no idea, but, and yet it just remains with you all these years later. I read about a prayer that a child had led in a Bible class many years ago. One prayer was, Dear God, thank you for my baby brother. But what I prayed for was a puppy. That's how a child prays. 
Read about another one, how a boy made an offer that God could not refuse. Dear God, if you watch at church this Sunday, I'll let you see my new shoes. <laughs> and then my favorite one, dear God, please take care of mommy, daddy, my big sister, my doggy, and me. Oh, and please take care of yourself too, God. Because if anything were to happen to you, we would be in quite a pickle. <laughs> and it might seem ridiculous to us, but I hear prayers like that. And there's just a part of me that thinks, I want to pray like that. Where it's just so simple and so heartfelt. <clears throat> because I know that when God hears prayers like that, his heart is soft to him. And his heart melts at prayers like that. that. That is the heart of a child. When you look into the eyes of a newborn infant, that is to have a glimpse into the glory of God. Because it is absolute innocence. But, you know, even though we do, even though we must grow older, and we do sin and fall short of the glory of God, I love what King David says when he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. I want a brand new heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In other words, give me the heart of a child is what he's really praying. What Jesus is calling us to is to a childlike or, or to a child's trust and faith in Christ. And there usually comes a time when, when a child's greatest heroes are their mom and dad, where they think that, that my dad can do anything. They get to be a teenager, and that's quite another story, but I'll never forget when, when I was a child, we would sing, and we would sing songs like, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And I mean, we would sing that song at the top of our lungs. We did not care how we sounded, how on-key or off-key we may have been, we it's as if it was just us and God. And yet we become adults. And it just seems like that changes. And it's like we just aren't quite as mesmerized by God as we were when we were kids. As adults, we look at songs like that. Jesus loves me, my God is so big. And we think, well, that's just for the kids. And we... And, you know, I, you know, I so often sing, and the only thing on my mind is, well, if I really sing out, I'm going to annoy everybody around me because I'm a horrible singer. But I didn't think that way as a kid. I just thought, I love Jesus so much that I want to, to, to sing it at the top of my lungs. See, and so often we just lose our grandeur and our reverence for our God. I read this quote by an author named Mike Iaconelli. He says that the most critical issue facing Christians is not abortion. It's not pornography or the disintegration of the family. It's not MTV or homosexuality or school and prayer. But the critical issue of today is of dullness. He says that we have lost our astonishment to where the good news is no longer good news. It's just the okay news. 
Christianity is no longer life-changing. It's just merely life-enhancing. Jesus no longer changes his people into wild-eyed radicals anymore. He just turns them into nice American people. We have forgotten what it's like to stand speechless in the presence of Jesus, hearts beating wildly, stunned by what God is doing in our world. I don't know about you, but I want to get that back. When I praise God, I want to praise God as if I realize that he has rescued me from hell. When I take this gospel, I want to proclaim this gospel as if it is the greatest treasure in this world. Or in other words, I want to preach as a child would preach. What Jesus is inviting us to is to a child's sensitive and tender heart. Now I've seen adults hold grudges and refuse to forgive somebody for over 40 or 50 years later in the future. Well, I've seen children push and shove, but then just seconds later they are hugging each other. And they've gone right back to also playing with each other, as if nothing ever happened. Really, one of the most moving things that I've ever seen came in Baltimore not that long ago, where you had race relations there, cops lining there in the streets, riots unfolding. And then we, we have this picture in the news of all of these white cops standing there, shields, weapons drawn. And then there is this little black child maybe seven or eight years old. And he's just looking up at them with the most angelic glow in his face, tears, in, tears running down his little face. As under that hot sun, he is holding water bottles for these cops to, to drink and to be cool under the sun. And every time I see that picture, I think, that is the kingdom of heaven right there. That is the heart of a child. And I look at that and I think that's how I want to worship God. That's how I want to walk up to my worst enemy in the world and to act like. We need tender hearts. And yet, above all, what Jesus is inviting us to is to a child's joy, to a child's excitement and zeal. Really what I love about children is that they are fearless about showing how happy they are. You know, I'm so happy, so very happy, I've got the love of Jesus in my heart, down in my heart. You know, after David had asked for a clean heart, remember that he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Paul says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. And yet again, we become adults, and that changes. I was at, my, at a church many years ago, and we would have a lot of immersions, baptisms. And, but the elders all got together because one, one week there was a person who was clapping and, and who was rejoicing that there was a new child in Christ. One of those elders walked up to a song leader and said, from now on, if there's ever a baptism, the second that they come up from that water, start leading a song. Because we've got to drown out all of this clapping and applause and 
celebrations. And I'm thinking, you can boycott that all you want to, but you're not going to silence heaven when it erupts over just one child coming home to God. Child, or, you know, heaven worships like children. When are we going to? He's calling us to a child's humility. Because little children, you can actually teach them things. You know, a child three or four or five years old, they, they don't think that they know everything about everything. They're not too proud to say that they need help. And yet again, for us adults, that's a whole other story. And yet, what does Jesus say? That everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled. But everybody who humbles himself and takes on the form of a servant, he is going to be exalted in my kingdom. This is what he's calling us all to this morning. Humble souls, gentle spirits, so tiny in their own eyes, who bask and who are utterly mesmerized by the gargantuan enormity of their beloved God, are so dear, whose hearts are so tightly knit closely together with the heart of Christ. What would happen in this church if every single one of us were to think to ourselves, I'm going to worship Jesus like he just rescued me from hell. What would happen in this church if we began praying and loving people the way that little children do? I think that what would happen is what I experienced at a homeless <laughs> church one day in I went there thinking that I'm going to encourage these you know, homeless people. But as they started worshiping, I, I started looking at them. And I'm talking about they are standing up. There are tears pouring from their eyes. Their, their hands are reached to the heavens. They have the biggest beaming smiles on their faces. And when I looked in their eyes, I saw a six-year-old boy. I saw a three-year-old girl who was at Disney World. And, and it just utterly swept over me. That I do not that they do not need to change to become like me. I have to change to become like them because they have received the kingdom of heaven as a child. In the gospel accounts, we see people who are possessed by evil spirits. But to have the heart of a child is to be possessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about that woman who said that if I can just get close enough to just tug on the hem of his garment, I will be saved. That's all it takes. It's the man who said, Lord, you don't even have to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant is going to be healed. That is the faith in the heart of a child. And so, brothers and sisters, again, this is his invitation for us this morning. Does anybody here want to go to heaven? He says to you as well as to me that if you want to spend eternity in heaven, we must convert and become like children. If you want to spend eternity basking in the glory of God, then we have got to grow up and start acting 
like kindergartners. Let's pursue that kind of spirit. Let's enjoin our knowledge as men and women of God with the heart and with the spirit and with the soul of a kindergartner as we stand and as we sing.